You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. during my youth. It's not a memory of being bundled up under the bed covers reading well past bedtime. That said, the memory of my first reading of this classic is just as powerful and wonderful. As with many parents, I read the novel to my youngest son when he was old enough that I felt he could appreciate the depth and wonder of Middle Earth. Over the course of a great many weeks, we read of Bilbo's epic adventure, laughing, gasping, me with my arm around him, feeling his small body against my chest, the novel open with one hand, he turning the page as we got to each page's last word, eager for another. The Hobbit holds a very special place in each of our hearts, and though we enjoyed The Lord of the Rings together on film, my son to this day refuses to watch The Hobbit with us for fear that that memory will be ruined. He's read about the scenes which were added to the film, which didn't appear in the novel, as well as scenes that were changed, and this means something to him. And he's not alone in this. Many have either stayed away from the film or openly critiqued it for its liberal approach to the classic tale, while others embrace the spirit of Tolkien, rather, which Jackson is no stranger to. They enjoy seeing interpretations of events which occurred, quote-unquote, off-camera in the novel. Tonight we discuss the first in the Hobbit trilogy, An Unexpected Journey. What was your first introduction to The Hobbit, Vince? God, I can't even remember what age I was, probably somewhere around eight or nine, somewhere in there. And my grandparents actually had, uh, in the spare bedroom that I would like stay in when I slept over there, a pretty big book collection that was actually books that my father and my uncles read when they were kids. So I spent a lot of time reading those old books, and The Hobbit was one of the ones among them. And I, I, at that point, I had no concept of, you know, the Lord of the Rings or any of that. It was just, oh, it was a fun little book about, you know, a little guy and a bunch of dwarves. That's probably where my obsession with the awesomeness of dwarves started <laughs> in retrospect. <laughs> and then, you know, years later when I was in school and I saw the Lord of the Rings, I didn't even know it was related to The Hobbit until I started reading it. And I, that's when, you know, the whole adventure started, if you will. Hmm. Okay. It's, uh, it's funny because... When you're when you're talking to people about the Lord of the Rings, you tend to have the people who are somewhat ambivalent. It's just it's there. It's whatever. And then the people who are just diehard fans of the IP and who take it very very seriously. Now, obviously, not having read it for quite some time, I actually am am open to certain interpretations to the novels, and and that's that's all right. I'm. As a whole, I'm fairly good at separating a novel from a film adaptation. As a whole, there are some cases where it's not that I take offense, but I see it as poorly executed without a doubt. And we're seeing that when we look at certain comic book adaptations as well. But I'm still, for the most part, able to kind of let it go and roll with it. And 
with the Lord of the Rings, the original the Lord of the Rings movies, I should say, I really was able to roll with it and have fun with it and, and enjoy it for what it was, the, the film spectacle that it was, event even. And so when this came out, I even though, again, I have this very special place in my heart for the novel, having had that time to read it with my son, and until you read a novel with your child and something with weight to it that takes a while and it actually like it takes up so much of their short life already that it has such an impact on them and as such has an impact on you until you do that it's hard to for people to relate to that like i'd read novels or not well small novels and, and mainly books to my older three kids but never anything of such consequence, something that hefty. And so when we tackled The Hobbit, and it took quite a while. I mean, when you're reading to a child, it's not like you're reading three or four chapters a night kind of thing. Some some nights it's only a few pages. Some nights it's quite a few. So it's it's spread out over quite a while, and it becomes part of your life for quite a while. And it's something wherein you look forward to that time together. That, that alone time, just you and he or she, depending on if you read it to your little girl. And it's, again, it's one of those things that's hard to explain to someone who's never, never done that. And it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. So I, even though I have that, I was still very much open to what he planned to do with this, with this story. Peter Jackson, of course. And we'll talk about everybody else who was involved later on. So, but again, my son, who's, who's not a child anymore, he's, He's going to be 17 shortly. I mean, refuses. To, I, we watched it again <laughs> yesterday so that we could prep for it. I mean, I got it on Blu-ray so that it would look fantastic on our big screen and everything. And um, initially I thought that, you know, this would be something that we'd have together as well because we had the novel. So I thought, oh, this will be fantastic. And it's like, I don't want to watch that. I don't go, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to ruin it for me. And I'm going, oh, damn. So, so yeah, I watched it with my wife initially and we, we did enjoy it. And so then we watched it again yesterday and prepped for this. And, uh, and so you're a little bit more critical, but you're also seeing things that you, you had in the first time around. You see, it's interesting. Like I said, I read the book, but it didn't really stick with me as much as it did a lot of other people. It was, you know, just another book that I had read through. What historically, like when I look back and like think uh, of The Hobbit and stuff, what actually sticks out most in my memory prior to you know the Peter Jackson films was the old animated movies from back right. in the 70s, which right, yeah. I didn't see, obviously, in the 70s because I wasn't around. But the, those Rank, Rankin-Bass animated films, I haven't seen them in ages, so I can't even attest to how good they are because, you know, as a kid, you don't really care about that stuff. But I remember, like, the imagery of it. Like, the, I could still tell you, like, how Frodo was dressed in, you know, the Lord of the Rings animated ones. But stuff like... I remember I was terrified of Gollum and the trolls. Like it was, it was a very like dark fantasy art style, and it it that's what I remember. Like when I think back of the Hobbit, not so not necessarily you know my my experience reading the book, but watching those animated films the first time around is really my my uh, biggest interpretation of that coming into the movies. See, I watched them when I was a kid because. I was around now. <laughs> and um, they didn't have as much of an impact. I have a feeling that if I watch them now, it, they probably didn't hold up quite the same. And I might not 
think very highly of them. And I could be wrong. It's been, again, I was a kid when I saw them. And they really didn't impact on me all that much, especially when compared to a lot of the other animated stuff that I was watching at the time, which did. And so that, for some reason, it really, really didn't. And again, with the novels... It's not that I didn't read a lot. I was a voracious reader. I mean, again, we have a novel a library in the house of a couple of thousand books. And when I was a kid, I, in my room, had also a little mini library with tons and tons of novels. I've, I've always read a lot. And yet, for some reason, I never tackled those, which is very funny because the, the librarian that we had, too, I come from a very small town, and we did have a library, and there was a number of books there which I ripped through. I would literally would rip through aisles. Um, she was great, and she would recommend a lot of different things, and I, I assume that those novels were there, of course, but she actually surprisingly never recommended them to me, which is disappointing because I think that knowing those experiences now you would really want to encourage children to and and young adults to to take part in this story and to actually you know appreciate the the depth and breadth of of middle earth mm-hmm. see it's interesting cuz like at that age like i said around the time i was first read the hobbit i actually wasn't all that into like high fantasy settings at, at that time, I was more into like detective stories and, and a lot yeah. of sci-fi stuff. Yeah, it wasn't that. until I was a little older that I started getting more and more into the fantasy uh, side of things. Probably, uh, I was probably around the time where I actually read Lord of the Rings proper that I, I gained a greater appreciation for that setting. Yeah. See, same thing with the detective and mystery novel. Oh, my God. I read a ton of those. And I did like a lot of fantasy, although there was different types of fantasies that I really enjoy. Like at that, at that time, the Zanth novels became very, very popular. I don't know if you've ever read any of those. I have not actually. They're actually very good and they actually hold up as well. I actually got my son to read a lot of them and they're, they were exceptionally popular. And there was a ton of them as well. And so I read a lot of those. So there was a lot of fantasy that I did read, but, uh, but for some reason, never that. So let's move on to the actual movie here the um the hobbit was actually some people don't realize but um peter jackson actually wanted to work on the hobbit first not the lord of the rings and it's just that the rights to the hobbit were still held by uh united artists so they actually couldn't work on it so that's why he was convinced to work on the lord of the rings with uh, fran walsh who co-wrote with him now fran walsh returned for this here for the the Hobbit and also Philippa Boyens and also Guillermo del Toro and we'll get into that a little later on. Well, actually, not too not too later on. <laughs> how how there, long are we talking about pre production, Roger? <laughs> well, just to, to lay the groundwork here because I think it's important because again, some people would just assume, yeah, of course, Jackson's going to work on this. Well, there was some legal issues between Jackson and with um, with the studios when they for the lord of the rings they were having problems with actually getting the money for the work that they did and so he was actually suing new line and co-founder robert shea of uh, of new line said that he would never direct for them again and that kind of changed a little later on but they were bringing in del toro to work on the hobbit and so he did a lot of the co-writing along with jackson which they brought in and the other two writers so a lot of the influence that you see in the story of 
this first outing, and it's going to be felt in the other ones as well. That's directly attributable to Guillermo del Toro. Now, again, there was a strong collaboration with Jackson, they said, even when they started closer to filming. But again, he was going to be directing it, del Toro. And because of the problems that they had with the studio's with uh, with mainly MGM, I believe, is who it was. It was taking forever to actually get the the movie into production. To the I was convinced the movies would, would never, never be yeah. made. Yeah, I I had given up hope of ever actually seeing these films. Yeah, it was going to be a legend because it was taking far too long to the point where Del Toro walked. He said he just couldn't wait anymore, and that's when New Line started looking at other directors to work on it. <laughs> Fans revolted, and that's when Jackson was brought into the fold as the director. So a lot of what we're going to be talking about, and again, some of the changes that are in there, I, yes, he directed it, and I, he, he would have agreed to different things as well, but the influence that's there, a lot of it is actually Del Toro as well. Mm-hmm. So let's move on. Of course, if you're not familiar with the story, well, we're just going to run through through it, but we're not going to... like pick it apart obviously it's a fairly well-known story and, and that being said too there's not that much to it it's not going to take very long to okay <laughs> like this is a very long movie and for me personally that's one of the biggest problems i have with it i'm willing to go with a lot of what goes on in here a lot of it but when you're talking about stretching out Every little thing to the point where you need a store, a song and dance routine for putting away dishes. To me, you've stretched it well beyond what it should be. And again, it initially, it was only going to be a two-part movie, which in and of itself, that's too long in my opinion. But now they've stretched it to three to include different, a whole bunch of different things were like, that were in like footnotes and things like that. So there's going to be, who the hell knows what's going to be happening in that third film. It's actually interesting, like the you know, balancing act, uh, Peter Jackson's pulling with now stretching this into third films because, of course, there's a vast amount of story that has been written for Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, etc. that was never in those books proper, but yeah. in a lot of extra material that was later published and all this that they don't have the rights to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's this phenomenal backstory that they can kind of hint at and use as like an inspiration but can't actually show. They can only show the parts of that backstory that were specifically mentioned in the books as, oh, stuff that happened, but we just didn't show you that. <laughs> yeah, which, again, it's crazy. They point blank said, too, that like, the third is going to encompass a lot of highlights of the first two with some extra stuff tossed in as well. I'm thinking, really? We need a highlights reel for three-hour-long movies? <laughs> I don't think so, but... I mean, we'll see what comes out of this. So this one here, again, there's going to be some things that were not in the novel that they put in. Now, I don't know how you feel about that because the way they they talk about it too is that they put in things that they envisioned happening or that were kind of referenced that are not in the novels. Like periodically Gandalf just disappears, which is true. You'll be reading for a long time and where the hell's Gandalf? Are you just gone and buggered off so but what they do here is they actually show you some of that so you get to see some things and this is why we saw the return of Kate Blanchett and uh, and what's his face um dude from Matrix there um Hugo Weaving Hugo Weaving yes 
See, there were parts of that that I really enjoyed, and something like like the the whole scene in uh, in Rivendell with uh, Elrond and Galadriel and Saruman. That I didn't enjoy as much because it felt to me like that specific scene. Of course, with those actors and the cinematic style, it was it felt to me like they're trying to turn the Hobbit into Lord of the Rings, right. which it, it it's not a very easy transition to make because just the, the whole concept and story structure and, and general tone like they don't fit together that well and like that scene really stood out as you know it it didn't really fit with the rest of what they were trying to do whereas other stuff like um well, with radagast and murkwood and stuff like that that i i really enjoyed and it, like especially since you know we never got to see radagast uh previously and also because it was sylvester mccoy like I, it was more fitting with the tone of the Hobbit, and I actually enjoyed those scenes. <laughs> Except for the rabbit sleigh. The rabbit that sleigh. That was hilarious. I was kind of like, oh, come on. <laughs> but talking about, again, stuff that wasn't in the novel, then we have the stuff at the beginning with Frodo. And where you see, essentially, the beginning of the Hobbit is the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, where they are setting up the birthday party for Bilbo and Frodo's there. And you have that moment where they're, they're talking to each other a little bit and Bilbo's working on his memoirs that he's writing. And then you have Frodo taken off to go and meet up with Gandalf. And you know, having seen the Lord of the Rings, that that's the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, which leads into this epic adventure for Frodo. So you have that, that again, Frodo, heading off to he's going to be having his epic adventure and then cut to Bilbo who's just about to have his epic adventure. I really actually liked that a lot. Yeah, and it was a, it was very fitting. Everything worked well and it's kind of a necessary evil for the people who are coming into this without knowledge of the books or whatnot who don't know it's supposed to be a prequel. It's just kind of that little thing you have to put in there to really guide the audience to where you need them to be. Yeah, I see even without that thinking about that I liked it just because of, again, that having seen the other ones several times, obviously, and knowing what's coming, knowing that he's heading off to meet Gandalf and knowing what's going to occur there was really a lot of fun. I I enjoyed seeing that a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you have the backstory that's narrated immediately afterwards where you get told about what was happening at Erebor. And then you have the story of the dwarves there, of course. You know that this is a story about the dwarves and Bilbo. So here you get the story about what happened to the dwarves. You find out about the ruler of the, the, the this dwarf kingdom, which was Thror. And he, he got a little gold happy there. And enough so to get the dragon Smog over to destroy the smog. kingdom. And smog. Smog. <laughs> whatever. I say smog, actually. Actually, if you listen I've, to... I've it, said smog for decades. Yeah. So. Actually, if you listen to them, though, it's kind of... It depends on who you listen to, how they pronounce it. Smog. It's not a Canadian thing. I say smog. <laughs> okay. Anyways. Um, and later on, smog is going to be voiced by my pal, <laughs> Cumberbatch, which I'm so freaking looking forward to that. I think that's going to be awesome. I, I did, actually didn't even know until I was like researching for this episode. He's also playing the necromancer. Oh, really? That I didn't know. Actually. Yeah, I didn't know either until like 20 he minutes ago. He can do anything. <laughs> I love him. Anyways, okay. <laughs> um, so anyways, he comes and destroys the kingdom. Special effects here. I mean, they're, they're 
this is what they're known for. But holy crap in hell did this ever look amazing and really set up the character, too, of Thorin Oakenshield, who is Thoror's grandson. Really set him up already as someone that you are willing to follow on this epic adventure because you know that's what's coming up. I love dwarfs. I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) But it also went a long way. Like, very subtly, though, really portraying, you know, the... the, uh the divide between the elves and the dwarves and oh, yeah. it's showing, you know, how both sides are to blame for it. And, and I, it, it was very subtle, but in basically just like some facial gestures, they were able to get that point across. The dwarves did nothing wrong. There was no, none on both sides. Yeah. It was a freaking no, hoity-toity elves got a little, down uh, you know, and, too big for their, uh, their mountain and, you know, felt that the elves needed to pay them homage because of the, you know, the fancy stone and all that. And the elves didn't like that. It, it's there. It's there. Hoity-toity elves. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a bunch of pansies, you know, come on. <laughs> still, you, you, you can, you could see like, in that scene where, uh, Elrond is meeting with Thror in the throne room. He's not happy about the way Thror is treating him. Yeah, well, that goes both ways. <laughs> exactly. That was, they're, they're, they're both slightly to blame for the yeah. problems. Well, yeah, but it all started because of the elves. Although the dwarves didn't leave the elves to die. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> They'd have been right there to help as it's long a, as there was beer on tap. They're very sensitive folk. Yeah. <laughs> And then you have the epic battle immediately after as well, because the dwarves are trying to reconquer Moria now. And so they're fighting the orcs now. And again, supremely well handled in terms of special effects. This battle, you can feel. I would have loved to have seen this in 3D. I'm not a huge proponent of of 3D films, but man, there are some that I would really like to see in 3D. And this would have been one of them because that battle scene must have been epic in 3D. I've actually heard the 3D conversions for these films are not that great. Really? Mm -hmm. Dude, because I watched the special uh, features on the Blu-ray for this. Actually, just literally last night I was watching. And when you see the amount of work that went into the 3D for this, it's somewhat surprising to hear that it's didn't come out that good because holy That's crap the general consensus i'm getting from you know the various people i follow in movie circles they said great movie go see it just 2d huh damn it okay well not that it matters i don't have a 3d tv anyways although our plasma at some point is gonna break <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we you also have the whole uh shenanigans going on with how at least the first one i don't think they're doing it with the second movie with the the 48 fps screenings that were very disorienting for a lot of viewers. Yeah, some people kind of said that it felt like it looked too much like real life, essentially, and it didn't have that soft tone that you get in movies. It's also one of those things, though, how it made the computer effects seem that much more fake at the same time. Because, you know, no matter how good computer effects are, they're still very distinguishable from a human effect. They move differently and stuff like that. And when you don't have the lower frame rates to kind of hide some of that with motion blur and, you know, frame skips and whatnot, it does tend to stand out. Like, I haven't seen it in 48 FPS, but I can at least envision how it would be kind of off-putting in certain, especially in a movie like this where the special effects are so pervasive. Honestly, I, again, I don't know. Although I will be trying to make a point of going to see the second one when it comes out. So I will see it at the theater. The first one, obviously I rented it or I bought it, I should say. Um, but I will try to go and see the other one and I will try to go and see it in 3d just so that I can, you know, 
be I would be interested be. in your in your opinion. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So again, huge orc battle, and the leader of the orcs, Azog, he takes off Thror's head, and uh, it's a head. That for actually <laughs> that kind of stuck out at me because you know the Hobbit is supposed to be the more lighthearted side of it. It's not. Ninety eight percent of the movie is you know a perfectly suitable film for your kids. <laughs> Except for and then you have the rolling. disembodied head of the dwarf king and the arm being taken off. Yeah, so yeah, it's a little harsh. <laughs> Anyways, fantastic fight scene once again. You have the problem which shows up then as well with the 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 elves, and it's all very well very well done. So from there, you cut to sixty years um, from later. Later, yeah, no. Sixty years later, and uh, you have Bilbo smoking his pipe, about to meet Gandalf the Grey, and this is the first time we see Martin Freeman as Bilbo. Now, as big a Benedict Cumberbatch fan as I am, oh, I love Martin Freeman as well. I mean, this, and it wasn't until yesterday that I thought of that, and I was thinking it's like a Sherlock reunion for the next movie. <laughs> Well, this movie is the reason we've had to wait so long for Sherlock. For Sherlock, yeah, yeah, um, but. When they, they talked about the casting for this and whatnot, like they said, Freeman was their choice and they were afraid that with the casting, because of Sherlock, they would, wouldn't be able to get them. But they did they did get them. And it's like, I can't think of anyone better to do a better job as Bilbo. And he proves it in literally the first few minutes on screen. Proves that he's got this and he's the perfect cast for it. Yeah, he he was. I, I'm right with you. I can't think of anybody else who could have done a better job. Yeah, because they talk about some of the people that they considered for the role, and it's like, oh, thank God, because <laughs> they actually considered Toby Maguire. I'm thinking, oh my God, no. But yeah, he's phenomenal. <laughs> it's that he always looks like he's uncomfortable. There's always something that's that's vexing him in some ways and of course that's the whole point of this story is this person who does not want to leave home is comfortable in his home but goes on this epic adventure and stays there later because he wants to help the dwarves get their home back um so yeah amazingly well cast and then it's not long you see all the dwarves show up at his place too and again the the casting for this movie was absolutely phenomenal. There's literally not a weak character amongst the bunch. So from there you have... I'm just trying to think of the dwarves' names. <laughs> oh, I can't do it. <laughs> Let's see. You've got Thorin and Philly and Killy and Humpty and Dumpty. Oh, please. Sneezy. <laughs> that was terrible. That was terrible. I should cut that out. <laughs> like, I... I like, I can recognize all of them, but I couldn't tell you which one's which. Well, I don't think you need to. So here is where you have, again, one of the scenes which I abhor. And that's the freaking dwarves singing while clearing the dishes and doing the dishes and cleaning up. <laughs> and it's one of those things where, again, you think about, like, you're, you're, you're watching this and it's like, knowing, okay, I know that they're adding a whole bunch of crap to this movie to stretch it out. and you and And it's like... It's not like it's like two two-hour movies. <laughs> it's three, potentially all of them, three-hour movies. There could have been some trimming in there. And a song about clearing the dishes is I would have trimmed that fat out. 
Yeah, def- definitely. And I didn't even like the song. <laughs> now, when they were singing around the freaking fire later. Absolutely. Oh, my God. That has got so much character and weight to it. Like, this is, you can feel their plight and you can feel like these are all, you know, men who have lost their homes and they're fighting for all of their, their kingdom and, and everything. It's like, in, and it's beautiful song too. Like, oh my God, that belonged in the movie. Dish yeah, song, like, cut that crap out. Even thinking about it, like my hair is standing on edge again because it was so oh, phenomenal. Oh, and it was, and it beautifully sung too. So yeah, so that belonged. So again, you have these, these fantastic moments in there. And then, of course, in the morning, the wars are all gone. Bilbo's by himself and he realizes very fast in an empty house that he needs to go on this adventure and him running with the piece of the contract in his hand, <laughs> running down with his arms flapping around <laughs> again, Martin Freeman nailed it. It was like, Oh my God, I love you. It was absolutely perfect. Although at this point we're like 45 minutes into the movie and it's just really starting. Yeah. It's just starting. So yeah, I, I from here we're looking at again, various adventures here with trolls and with goblins and more with orcs you do get radicast the brown looking like he's been well they say to eating too many mushrooms <laughs> too many mushrooms <laughs> i see that's one of the ones too in all honesty i could have done without those scenes i i know that what it's setting up and the whole thing with the dagger which was uh, needed for the entire other scene that was made up <laughs> and dawsed in <laughs> but and it was, it, I mean, he did a fine job acting it out, but I think that they could have done without that as well. I'm not saying it was necessary overall, but I liked it, so right. I'm not against it. Okay. So, of course, Gandalf leads the dwarves to Rivendell, and you have then the meetups with, with Elrond. I like those just because of that, that confrontation between... The, the actors, I mean, you've got Richard Armitage as Thorin, and then you have Hugo Weaving, and they're both really strong actors, like really strong. A dude that played freaking Thorin Oakenshield, <laughs> Richard Armitage, oh my God, that dude's got freaking charisma just oozing out. <laughs> I was like, holy <laughs> crap, he is one sexy freaking dwarf, let me put it that way. And he has <laughs> presence on screen. It's like, I would follow that bastard into the... Well, when they have that entire scene, and see, this is where I don't remember the names of the individual dwarves either, the freaking white-haired dude that's in there, he has some phenomenal speeches throughout. But when he's talking about what happened with the orc raiding party and stuff, and that he would follow this man into battle... Wow. It was just perfectly set up everything. The flashback was seamless, beautiful, and it was like, I'd follow you into battle. I got bad knees. I'd hobble, but I'd be there with your brother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm beginning to think that's not the only place you'd follow him, the way you're talking about it. You know you feel the same way. <laughs> so here we have a lot of uh, of parts to various parts with all of the various battles that you see too, where like the, one of the things that, that and, I, and it was a long time ago that I read the novel, so I'm not an expert in terms of what what is true in, in all aspects. And I know that Gandalf disappeared a lot of different times. But here it's like every time they're in serious problems, it's Gandalf who's coming to the rescue. 
I'm trying to remember if that's what happened as often in the novel. I'm, I think I remember the whole scene with the trolls and the sunlight. I, I seem to remember that being in the novel. I, I couldn't tell you any, any because of the he saves them from the goblins as well. Yeah. And then he saves them later on from the orcs, leading them down. Friggin' or- dwarves would have been dead. They minutes off oh the man, doorstep they without Gandalf. Jeez. Hooked. <laughs> With what was it, paprika? <laughs> what was it that they were going to use? I can't remember. <laughs> and so, yeah, so you have a lot of scenes where Gandalf comes to the rescue, essentially. It leads to, it all leads to, well, actually, before even that, the important thing, too, is when they're they're up against the, all of the goblins and whatnot, Bilbo manages to get away, but he falls down through a crevice with one of the goblins who's attacking him. And that's where you get the reintroduction to Gollum as well. And that's where you find out, you see where Bilbo finds the ring and discovers how to use it and things like that. They actually don't make use of the ring in this one a lot. It's it's not there to take over the movie. They actually talk about that in some of the special effects and it was kind of cool. I, I, I like that it's it's more again the story of the dwarves and the the working together with Bilbo and things like that and, and reclaiming their heritage than it is just about a fancy ring. So, Is it just me or did Gollum look better in the older movies than he did in this one? Really? Because from what I read, they used the, ex, the exact same technology to create him this time around that they did last time. I don't know. Maybe it was the lighting or something. I, I don't know. I just... I found he looked pretty much the same. It might just be something weird with me. I'd have to watch them time. side by side to to honestly be able to. Mm-hmm. So it was funny because in some of the special effects, um, they they talked to uh, damn it, I have it written down. Andy Circus, who who did the role, and he was saying how he felt like he was impersonating the role that he created because it had <laughs> been so many years since the the Lord of the Rings that he he's kind of let go of that and moved on but now he has to go back and recreate what he created which is kind of funny and uh, he actually had a massive role in this he was actually a second director this mm-hmm. time around so he did a ton of work on this which was fairly cool to see well it's also actually a very different character even though it's the same person too and that, that might be part of it how God, he was so phenomenal especially in that third movie like it's like in comparison, a much more simplified version of the character, if you will. It, at least maybe to me, it doesn't stand up quite as quite as well in comparison. Well, I think it's that he wasn't quite as crazy by that point. Yeah. He, he wasn't, you know, he was talking to himself, but not quite as much. He wasn't as over the edge, crazy, over the top kind of thing as what we saw in The Lord of the Rings. And I think that that's part of his appeal. So here he was, even though he was... He was much more ferocious too, kind of thing in this one, but I, I still, I still loved it. I still every scene he was in, kind of thing that they were together, the little puzzle thing that they did together, the riddles, <laughs> and again, Martin Freeman, dude, <laughs> that the scene between him and Gollum when they're doing the riddles was phenomenal, <laughs> absolutely fan. The way he holds his, he holds Sting. And it's like that discomfort and you can see he's never really swung a sword and he's trying to be, to look imposing when he really isn't. I, I love that scene. Yeah. So, um, so again, at the, they, they, of course they all escape kind of by way of the same route and 
Bilbo still has the ring on, so he gets behind and he can hear them talking about him. And they figure that he's just kind of run off. And that's when he has that really fantastic speech, even though it's only a couple of lines where he explains that, yes, he did want to go because he does belong at home. But he understands that they don't have a home and that's what he wants to help them. Dude, there's like a freaking lump in my throat every time I <laughs> I hear that. It was <laughs> phenomenally written. It's like when I was uh, re-watching it. You know, for this episode, I, I wasn't going to sit through a three-hour movie, so I was watching it in chunks. And like right after that scene is where I had stopped. And so when I went to to start it up again, I went and rewatched yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, out of the was it out of the frying pan into the fire? The, yep. Immediately, exactly. what they say? Yeah. Immediately, you've got the orcs on their tail, and you have fantastic fight scene there well chase and then fight scene between the two of them and it ends far too abruptly considering it's a three-hour movie it ends very abruptly with a freaking bird ride and you gotta wonder why not just take them a little further it's right there <laughs> no they drop them off on this rock so i i that was another thing too that with the, the birds that i wasn't crazy about that it didn't really fit. They were just being saved instead of saving themselves. And then it's one of those two, well, why didn't he just freaking talk to a moth in Rivendale <laughs> or somewhere else? You know, he could have hitched the ride a lot earlier for them. I, I'm trying to remember, and for some reason, and I, I may be completely off on this because uh, it's memory from several decades ago, but that the the eagles didn't really like to involve themselves in uh, the affairs of the, you know, the earthbound species, if you will. And they kind of just come to help Gandalf more out of obligation. Like it's not something they wanted to do. So because like, I seem to remember like near the end when they show up again, it's like, you know, this this is it. Where you're, <laughs> you're, on, your you're, you're on your own after this. So. <laughs> Listen here, Bertie. <laughs> you get your butt over here. <laughs> See that mountain? It's right over there. Four how flaps that and you're there. Fly? Yeah, really? <laughs> and how does it speak birdie language? I don't know. Anyways, there were some... interpretive dance. <laughs> <laughs> What's that, Lassie? Gandalf stuck in a tree? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, do I cut that out or not? No. Oh, that's got to stay. <laughs> the thing is, is, I can see it in my head. <laughs> my so imagination works in cartoons. 53 is exactly oh, when the codeine took God. Effect. Yeah, really? <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> So, again, as we've, we've, we've said, too, there's, there's a lot of scenes here that were, were added in. There was a lot of stuff that was really stretched out, too. As much as I enjoyed it, and as much as I even enjoyed watching it a second time around, both times I felt the same way as I do periodically when re-watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and that is that there is need of a better editor 
to cut some of this out or to tell them before they start filming, because the filming process is insane for these movies, to just leave some stuff out. Some stuff is far too stretched out, and and it's to the detriment of the movie. It doesn't actually make it better, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It actually really takes away from how majestic it could be if the pacing actually worked to, to as a momentum instead of stalling out periodically. Yeah, if you want to take a 300-page book and turn it into three movies, you're going to add stuff in. I can accept that. I might not like it, but I'll accept it. But then to take those three movies and stretch them out, yeah. It, it, it's yeah, it it doesn't work. Like they're they're <laughs> there's actually an extended edition. <laughs> God, like like when they did Lord of the Rings, I, I thought the extended edition was great because you know that's significantly more. <laughs> like the, each Lord of the Rings novel was longer than the entire Hobbit, mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Uh, there was stuff that they had to cut out to get each of those into one movie. So when the extended editions came out, I was like, oh, great. Here's a whole bunch of scenes that we had previously you know, not seen in the theatrical release. I cannot imagine. I haven't seen it. I cannot imagine what the extended edition of The Hobbit has. Like, if they left the dishwashing scene in, what did, did they, they cut? Spend? Yeah, really. Yeah. So, again, well worth watching. The if you pick up, I don't know if it's on the the DVD, but on the Blu-ray at least, there, which it, not surprising at least, you're gonna have somebody who likes doing three-hour movies. He's gonna go all out with the special effects or this the, the special features. Like there's like a video log that goes on for well over two hours that talks about a whole crap load of things. And and to his credit though, it was super super interesting. Like when they're talking about. All of the locations that they used in the movies, because of course it's it's in New Zealand, and um, I mean the the Lord of the Rings franchise, if you will, is massive for tourism in New Zealand to the point where they changed their labor laws <laughs> to the detriment of their people to their unions for the sake of making sure that the Hobbit was filmed there, and it, Peter Jackson says as well, a lot of people think that because of all the locations they use for the Lord of the Rings, they must have seen most of the island. And it's like, no, there's still a ton that they haven't seen. And it shows them going on scouting, you know, runs with like five choppers, tons of people going through all of these locations. And they talk as well about how people think that some of these places are special effects that Real places can't look like that. And they show the actual footage that they took of those places. And it's like, that's it. That's what that freaking place looks like. It is unbelievable. And then when you when you think about it too, because honestly, I'm, like, I'm not a fool, but I don't work in the industry. So I don't know everything that's involved with shooting on location. I expect that you're going to be bringing your crew with, you know, a complement of other people and the, obviously the, 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 the cameraman and, and sound folks and, and all of that, you're going to fly off, you're going to do your shoot, and you're going to come back. At no point in my brain, see, this is why I'm not in charge. At no point in my brain did I think of the, like, dozens of porta-potties that they're going to need, <laughs> the hundreds of cars, campers, all kinds of different things, the fact that they're taking up two football fields worth of space in each of these 
locations that they go to. Like, again, I uh, did you get a chance to watch any of these specials? I've seen some of them, but I, I haven't sat through Oh, my God. Them. It was fantastic. And I actually still haven't finished it. I've got still maybe a half hour to go on them, which is too bad. I wish I would have watched it and prepped for this. But still, it was phenomenal to see just how much work goes into this. How far removed are we from them just renaming the country Middle Earth? Yeah, really. <laughs> but it's, it's so cool. Like uh, Earlier this year, uh, Dan Slott, one of our favorite comic book writers, actually took a trip to Australia for uh, a convention that was out there. And he took a side side vacation to New Zealand. And he was just tweeting pictures of him going on this hike and ending up in Hobbiton. Yeah. I was like, it's still there. Yeah, like, it is. They, did, they didn't get rid of the sets. They just left it there. Well, they actually make a point to bring that up several times. How the, for the original. Imagine archaeologists <laughs> a thousand years. You know what's going to happen this, is this that bizarre race of little people. <laughs> this is going to be a post-apocalyptic setting. Everybody's going to get blown apart. Aliens at some point are going to come to colonize the planets, and they're going to see this. It's going to be like. How do I don't get how this fits in with the rest of the planet? <laughs> Did they just move all of the <laughs> them to an island? Like, that's not right. <laughs> but yeah, when they were for this one, as opposed to the other, the other one was all fake, so they took everything down when they were done filming. But for this one, they built it in. Like there's like the doors work. There's like it's wood and plaster and brick and everything that's staying there forever, and that's going to help with tourism insanely for them. I would go if it wasn't a 97-hour flight. Yeah, I would love to see that place. But first, I got to get my knees fixed so I can actually walk around. <laughs> but man, when I do, I'm going off a death. <laughs> so, I'm staying. I Yeah, really. <laughs> that little house there, that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> How hard can it be to dig a hole in there? <laughs> they actually showed a lot of the stuff inside of the sets, too, with the... the the Hobbit homes kind of thing. And the attention to detail is, isn't crazy. It's just, you got to applaud the, everyone involved in special effects, not just the digital special effects, but they, again, they did a lot of talking about the costumes, the makeup, everything else. And they had to do a lot of things differently because of that increased resolution too. filming in 5k, mm-hmm. which again, 5k TVs are going to be coming out at some point. Oh. <laughs> I think that might be when the plasma cuts out and dies. <laughs> I, st- I still don't have my entire house upgraded to 1080. <laughs> really? There's still a couple 720 sets kicking around. <laughs> I'm telling you, when the price drops on those 5K 3D, that's when it's time. <laughs> All right. We're actually going to wrap it up with that. It's been a fantastic episode talking about this. And I am looking forward to the next, inst- at least installment, maybe not installments, but installment to to come out just so that I can see. Cumberbatch and Freeman on the screen at the same time, the one digitally. <laughs> It'll still be freaking awesome. <laughs> Make sure to stop by the site at popcornronin.com. I actually put in a couple of posts for some trailers that we're excited about or just fun to talk about. And make sure to uh, let us know what you think about this episode on the site. And we will talk to you in a few weeks when we are actually going to be talking about some Shaun of the Dead and the World's End. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. So we'll talk to you then. Hot fuzz. We're not doing hot fuzz. <laughs> Damn it. I told you. It doesn't fit. The other two fit. <laughs> Dumb bastard. You're going to bring it up. I know you're going to bring it up when we're freaking talking. 
I'm going to be cutting you off all the time. <laughs> well, what's You're just going to keep talking nonstop. Don't take a breath. Don't take a drink. <laughs> I, I, no, I got one of these fancy things. Oh, I can't hear you now. <laughs> For more movie, TV, and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their comic book informer podcast and Internet Dragons TV gaming videos. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.